Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Eric, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me back, Robbie. We're going to talk about something special today, but we're not allowed to say the title of it until a couple of minutes in. Just until for... the five-minute mark, yeah. Yes. The fi- so once the five-minute mark comes, you'll randomly hear this, the title of the book, and then we'll go into that as well, too. But tell me a little bit about your book when it comes to – you wrote about James Elroy. Yeah. Uh, basically, what happened is when I, uh, I approached Pum- Pumpkin Books about geez, almost like 10 years ago – well, I'd say eight years ago now, when I was doing my first book on – my own book on parapolitical theory, which was called uh, The Spectacle of the False Flag. And it was when I was doing that book with them, which came out in 2015, I sort of got the idea because I was fishing around for ideas because I do a lot of criminology and criminal and uh, cultural criminology and criminology and philosophy and literary theory. And criminology is kind of a, I wouldn't, stagnating is too strong and pejorative a word for it, but it needs new ideas very badly. And one of the things that I was thinking about doing was to sort of formulate the theory of parapolitics in a manner which was conducive to criminological research and thought. And what I decided to do was do a series of books, uh, which is basically take the notions of parapolitics and apply it to the various categories of criminological theory you know, like hardcore criminology, which is like, you know, like international uh, graft, white collar crime, um, political murder, that sort of thing. But also some of the softer aspects of criminology, like uh, cultural criminology, social criminology, uh, criminology in film, literature, theater, that sort of thing, uh, popular culture. And I guess the Elroy book was sort of the result of a fusion of that because this was sort of my venture into cultural criminology proper. And I decided to make Elroy my main topic of concern because when I first came up with the book, uh, when it was in a much smaller form, it was just going to be on his Underworld USA trilogy, which is basically his application of his very idiosyncratic and signature form of neo-noir writing to the Kennedy assassinations. Uh, so the, the inside secret history of the United States from about 1959 to uh, 1970 to 1973. And I said that would be a really good way of sort of uh, contributing to my uh, cultural criminology parapolitical fusion project. And then, of course, once I started working on them, and it always happens, the same thing happens. I was working on a parallel book about Chester Himes as well and his uh, Norlam, uh, Harlem Noir series, which I had to put on the back burner for quite some time, uh, simply because of time restraints. Uh, and the thing just began growing and growing and growing. So by the time I finished my text and got off to the publisher, which was about a year ago, uh, and you know they, they accepted it immediately, uh, the thing, it was, a, I'd say, between a quarter of a million to 300,000 words. So it's become quite a massive tome, and it's like the entirety of his writings, uh, his autobiographical works, as well as his fictional works, uh, short stories uh, as well, film adaptations. But I, the main focus is on the novels themselves, and especially the, the three series, the L.A. Quartet, Underworld USA, and also the L.A. Trilogy as well, which a lot of people don't really remember very well because it was the Lloyd Hopkins books which were done before he really became a name. And of course, his breakthrough being, of course, being the uh, the Black Dahlia uh, book, which is about the murder of Elizabeth Short, 
that's the only one I know about because I had to look into that case at one point because I was interested in the whole Black Dahlia murders that started kind of string of them that started happening. But what what's the underworld? What's that one about? Is it you said it relates to the Kennedy assassination? Basically, yes. It's um, he um, if you take him at his word, and it's a little dangerous to take Elroy at his word because he's a performator, provocateur, twenty four seven, nonstop. Uh, he read Don DeLillo's Libra, which I make a great deal of in my book on uh, Spectacle of the False Flag, because I used Libra's book, which I think is sublime, and Elroy agrees with me on that one, or I agree with Elroy on that one. It is a sublime book. Uh, it is really one of the great parapolitical and crime novels ever written, Libra by Don DeLillo. Uh, and I used it to trash Stone's um, gargantuan mess of a film called jfk right that that's the one that tells everything before the assassination actually happened like all the events that go before pretty much yeah uh more or less yes and uh what happened is is that he's read it and he said i'm he said one of and he, he said he became one of his sacred laws for himself uh being demon dog he's a law unto himself and he simply said, I am never going to mess with this. No one is going to mess with this text. It's that good. But he also wanted to kind of come up with a homage to it as well as his own version of it. And his idea was to write the Underworld USA trilogy. So it's kind of like his homage to DeLillo's Libra and what it is. And I also managed to work in correlations or detect correlations or argue for correlations between what he's doing in Underworld USA and some of the great conspiratorial Roman historians um, of classical literature like Tacitus, for example, or <coughs> Seleust and in, um, on the Catiline conspiracy and that sort of thing. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a parapolitical deconstruction of uh, the American deep state or shadow state or parallel state or whatever it is you want to call it from about the years 1958 to 1973, which, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a, I've either got a very bad cold or a very slight case of COVID. I can't figure out which one I have got. Don't say um, that. Yeah, which, <laughs> which is, um, yeah, the, the vaxxers will come breaking through my door any second now. Um, Culminating, of course, in the death of Hoover, who's sort of like the connecting figure um, throughout uh, the entire trilogy, uh, because the the literary text is broken up with you, you get it's it's a beautiful conceit the way he sets it up. You read ten or twelve pages of fictional text, and then you read a ten page insert from the secret files of somebody who's been who that's been leaked by somebody after being received from somebody else that's telling us or is adding a kind of a, an ironical commentary on the literary action that we're seeing in the so-called fictional pages. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazingly clever Plimpset um, trilogy in which it mixes what are clearly fictional events, but you can argue are not implausible fictionalized novelization events that may or may not be true coupled with all this official looking classified uh, leaked material, everything's redacted, all kinds of code words, uh, confirmation numbers, counter confirmation numbers, all the sort of stuff that you would expect to see in a CIA or FBI secret report document. Uh, that's also fictional, but seems more real than not. So it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a, a head trip 
And what I decided to do was sort of write an exegesis, an exegesis, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it, an exegesis upon the entirety of Elroy's work. And then what I wound up doing was writing an exegesis on my own exegesis. Uh, so the the text is is pretty in depth and it, it's quite lengthy. That was the sign to say you can drop the title of the book name now. Oh, it's it's okay to to give the title yeah, of the book in. now, is it? It's, so we're in the five minutes, are we? Yeah. You're sure? Yeah. Because I don't I don't want to get canceled yeah, here. The all view from Howard's fuck pad. That's a great yeah, title of the book. Yeah, Thank the you. title of the book is the view from Howard's fuck pad. <laughs> uh, the deep state bad white men who are sort of the heroes anti heroes. And the weird noir of James Elroy. You're going to have to give a background for probably a lot of people listening who might not know what James Elroy's background is, his little history of him. I know that he's wrote a string of novels, but did you get interested in looking to him because of the fact that he's written so many novels? I know you mentioned a few of his already. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm curious. You, you were mentioning something earlier about uh, kind of having these essays that are obviously fictitious, but then having real documents in there as well, too. Well, not real documents, but insertions that appear to be real documents. So they're not real. Well, they look real and they sound real and they feel real. <laughs> Got it. And the idea and, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say, OK, can we set a ground some ground rules here? Because in what happens, how much how many spoilers am I allowed to to blurt out? You can do as I don't much really as want to ruin want. it for anybody. Anybody's going to, I mean, you don't have to obviously give like, don't give me your whole full book, but feel feel free to give some spoilers. I'm sure it's going to cause people to even buy it even more. Okay. Well, let me put it this way. This, this is not so much a, a plug for me. It's more for Elroy. When you get to the third novel, the third installment of the USA Underworld Trilogy, you find out where all these documents are coming from. That's one of the big reveals. And you realize that the whole all three texts are really written by the same guy who's releasing the documents. Wait, so, so what's what seems to be an objective third person, you know, third voice novel is actually the reconstruction by the person who reveals himself as the reconstructor and also the leaker of the documents by the end. I'm I'm so confused. You got well. I guess well, we, it is it is confusing. Yeah. That's why you ha you have to read it. Um, can you, could you give a breakdown on James Elroy just to understand who he is? I think I looked. I think I know a little bit about his past, but I think it's more of the dirty stuff of why he called it the view from Howard's fuck pad. But well, sure. Um, the uh, how do I go about this? Um, well, by the way, the publisher loved the title. I she went with it straight away. Was that difficult so I, to try and release? Um, she's going to go for it. So we'll okay. see how it did. I mean, it may, it may be blotted. That's part of the, the, the F word may be blotted out or some like Amazon or somebody just might type in a question mark, exclamation point, and then $2 signs. Or that <laughs> ruins it though. Howard's you got to gotta see that when you walk by in a store and you see the word fuck on a book, you're like, damn, you're like taken away. Yeah. Well, I, I hope so. And of course, some people thought it was kind of a cheap shot. And I said, no, I, I don't, I, I take shots, but not cheap shots, but. You know, Society's anyway. evolved enough to have that on a book. Uh, you'd be surprised how pe many people got squeamish. I mean, I'll tell you something about the cover as well. I mean, I don't know if you want to to when you know when you we you prepare this edit the the this for a broadcast. You want to actually come up with a cover of the copy. 
because uh, it's available to punctum. I have a I have a clip of it. Um, uh, there's a clip where you mentioned it, and it caught me off guard in our last episode because I started laughing. I was like, "Are you serious?" You're like, "Yeah, I have a clip of it," and it's uh, so I can put that on the YouTube to make sure people see that as well too. But yeah, it looks um. I don't. That looks hor- horrific. He looks like he's. Well, like it, well, that, well, that was the idea. It was meant to be horrific, goofy at the same time, kind of like Elroy. And uh, when I was fishing around, because I was working with the uh, deputy publisher, uh, assistant publisher at Punctum Books, to so we kind of designed the cover ourselves between the two of us. And uh, one of the things I had in mind was actually a. Um, not so much, not a painting, but a um, installation by Marcel Duchamp called uh, La Tente Donnée, which is uh, a masterpiece of, uh, well, Duchamp was kind of more of a Dadaist than anything else, but it's really a very surrealistic piece of art. And it's basically about a woman's body lying in the woods in a very suggestive, provocative manner. And uh, some people have speculated that whoever killed the Black Dahlia, um, and of course the way that the body was presented in an extraordinarily horrific manner, was actually meant, was intended to suggest surrealist art. That, you know, basically if, if, if there's a real guy like the Joker running around as a high concept serial killer, he'd be doing stuff like that, right? Like creating tableaus of corpses that actually evoke symbolism or surrealism or avant-garde artworks and uh, aesthetic yeah. theory like in christopher nolan's batman where they had batman hanging from one of the joke batmans or the ones that were yeah. imposters yeah. he was hanging from the <laughs> noose around right. his neck and remember i think there's this one death scene where they actually get a bullet out of that's embedded in the wall and the jokers actually set up this whole tableau that they discover and, and that and so it's it's yeah it's sort of like a maze of artistic references and I actually wanted to use that for the cover. So I, I applied to the museum that holds it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into any details. And, you know, to propose, can we actually put this on the cover? And because of copyright uh, reasons. And there was this month, months, months went by. And they finally wrote back and says, uh, no, we're not going to agree with this. And everyone was a little bit surprised that they didn't want, wouldn't allow me to put it on the cover. Because it, it's, it's so evocative of the theories about the Black Dahlia and why she was murdered and why her body was deposited in the way that it was. And that some people, of course, have speculated over the years that, in fact, it was a, 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 a psychopath who, in fact, was influenced by contemporary and um, art theory. Um, as a matter of fact, somebody even wrote even somebody even wrote a book suggesting that Orson Welles was actually the Black Dahlia killer, because it was it was the sort of thing he would have done if he was in a really really bad state of mind. Um, there was theories that the mob did it. I've, I've heard uh, those. Lo- had a lot of theories, possibly a relationship to an illegal abortion ring, uh, possibly a way of sending a signal to Mickey Cohn, whose house was just down the street uh, from where she was dumped. Uh, which is an interesting coincidence. A um, lot of theories, and well, I'll, I'll, we can really discuss that a little bit later because you can go off on a tangent on that one very, very easily. But the point is, is that when I I got the reject letter, we were sort of scratching our heads, wondering why it was rejected, and I and I think the consensus was that they didn't like the title. Uh, they they didn't want that work juxtaposed to what they thought was a a vulgar title. So I wrote to a friend of mine uh, explaining, he said, How, how's it going? Did you, get, did you get the cover approved? And I said, no, I didn't. And they wouldn't go for it. And then he wrote back and he said, a bunch of Puritans. 
So, yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, you'd be, be surprised how many puritanical responses you can still evoke. Well, they have like thousands of sexual literatures out there that have pictures of people basically full on nude on the front covers of things. And hell, there's a whole magazine dedicated to that Playboy. Um, but for some reason, when it comes to language, we still have that weird censorship barrier. Yeah. And the problem is, is, is that if you commit to saying the word, putting the word fuck in a title and then you back down and then you put F and then exclamation point ampersand two dollar signs, right? You look like a git. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's dumb. I mean, it, you could say what I did was dumb, but it's sort of dumb smart, you know. Uh, but doing it that way is just dumb. Well, and by the way, the origin of the word, it's actually technically a word from criminological history of uh, the criminal history of Los Angeles. The fuck pad is, as we know, is simply a place where men and women go to have, or men and men or women and women or whatever, go to have sex, right? The fun stuff. You, yeah, well, usually uh, that's kind of like it's a permanent place, like it's a cottage or it's a bungalow or it's an apartment somebody rents. And they just use it for their own part-time boudoir or something like that. But the f way that Elroy uses it was that he claims his father, um, Armand Elroy, who apparently did work for Rita Hayworth for a while. I think as an accountant, if I remember correctly, as a financial advisor of some kind. Um, learned from her that Howard Hughes had a whole... Um, apartment building worth of fuck pads spread all over Los Angeles County and into Ventura and up into the Central Valley and um, the Sierra Nevada and whatever. And that's where he would actually bed his, his beauties because he was sort of a serial sexual predator up to a point anyway. Elroy Although I was, right? I suggest, I, it, I, we think when you learn more about use. I think it was probably more for show than substance because um, anyway, I'm not going to give away one of the, the, the real dramatic insights of my book, but I mean, yeah, we can kind of question Howard's actual proclivities, but so Elroy picked up on the term fuck pad and it becomes one of his signature phrases or bon mots in the underworld USA trilogy. So I simply said, that if I take that word, which is actually Elroy's word, which he got from his father, who got it from Rita Hayward, Hayworth, who used it to describe what Howard Hughes was doing, and Hughes, of course, next to uh, J. Edgar Hoover, are the is the, the great shadowy mover of the events within the trilogy. I said, yeah, it actually fits. I mean, there's a legitimate reason for saying it, right? I mean, I got to go to anything. I could have said, you know, you know, hopscotch through Candyland with James Elroy wearing a dress. I, mean, I could have done that too, right? But I mean, it the, the actual title does make sense because it, it touches upon one of the main um, narrative threads and subplots of the trilogy, which is what I'm writing about. And also it touches upon um, one of the themes that I'm raising which is about our fascination with crime literature, crime fiction, and also true crime writing, you know, um, Capote's In Cold Blood and the creation of the, the nonfiction novel, for example, is it, it, it bespeaks of a kind of a voyeurism. You want to read this stuff because you get a thrill out of or off of <coughs> being in the know, being on the inside, having insider information. 
that and you use it you use that insider information to kind of like spruce up your existential credentials as being a noir sleuthing tough guy or tough woman or person uh because you know this stuff you're into it and you know stuff that you're a hepcat as elroy would say and the squares square johns don't know this stuff because they don't go there right so it's sort of a badge of cultural and social identity and of course knowing the inside well of course which means that a lot of crime writing even if it's very good crime writing and there is definitely superior crime writing and true crime writing uh, and then the good stuff is really good stuff i think um but at the same time it can't help hope it cannot help but being somewhat gossipy in its operation because what you're there for is to learn what you think the inside story actually is i think we were talking about this on a <laughs> excuse me on a podcast we were doing a couple months ago which is about why so many people within the conspiracy theory community are kind of difficult to work with and one of the reasons is, is that it, it's filled with people who rightly or wrongly are quite sincerely convinced that they have sorted out figured out something that no one ever has before well there's an elitism that comes with conspiracy thinking and that elitism is the fact that if you could be a person like if we take the kennedy assassination you solve the crime you're the person who solved this age-long mystery absolutely and throughout society everyone that listens to true crime podcasts or loves hearing a good mystery they're people that are interested in it because of the fact they're already thinking of ways of solving it as the podcast or as the book or as the movie is going on. A good example, take the Zodiac Killer. Uh, if you've ever seen that movie, Robert Graysmith, he got addicted to trying to solve and figure out what this thing was. And not necessarily for the purpose of doing it because you want to stop a killer on the streets, but that's how it starts. But then it became this thing that he was enjoying and it became obsessed with through the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, and of uh, course, um, the problem with the Zodiac one is, that, of course, the same thing was happening to me when I was was looking at it. I kind of came to the conclusion that he's actually a composite. Um, it's really he's sort of a the, the name Zodiac Killer is a cipher that has been used to apply to certain people who may in fact be completely unrelated, but are then like Jack the Ripper, but are then sort of discursively unified through the narrative that's constructed around them through the moniker Zodiac Killer. Or the Zodiac applied applied to multiple crime scenes, which may be completely unconnected. Also, I saw that the Zodiac made a real comeback in the the, the Batman movie as well, when they decided to do the Riddler as a, a kind of like a version of the Zodiac, which I thought which I thought was a really great way of actually making the Riddler a viable Bat villain. Is is to actually do him like that? Is is to actually make him a Zodiac? -like you didn't killer. like him like Jim Carrey, where he was running around? Uh no, Jim Carrey. Actually, to be honest about it, I thought Frank Gorshin was great in in the TV series. I I thought that was, but given the way he was in the comics at that time, that was about the best way to do him. But if you're doing him today, I think it would have to be something like that. I think the best person that should play Riddler is the guy who plays in uh, Oppenheimer. Oh, you mean Trillian Murphy? Yeah, Yo, he was the Scarecrow. Yeah, no, in the Nolan films. He would have done a way better Riddler. Well, maybe. But I got to ask, like, it, it kind of boils down to this um, underlying theory when we talk about, I guess, just the whole deep kind of state in general. But do you, I mean, do you think that, like, there, there could be, like, obviously researchers, writers, people in literature, we know that they've censored books in the past, but do you think that it's possible that some of these people that write literature, like 
if we take James Elroy, that have gotten their experience and some of their things that they might be saying are true, but there is a sense of kind of fantasy that goes with it. Like, do you believe James Elroy was that creative to be able to create all those works of fiction with all those endpoints? Or do you think that he was getting some information from somewhere else? Uh, he does have, um, he, Mike Davis said that of all the people in the world that he hated the most, James Elroy was the top of the list. Because for a number of different reasons. And one of the reasons was that he actually even doesn't do, do his own research. He sits out there on the East Coast, which is where I think he was. I think he was in New Jersey or New York at the time that he actually wrote many of the, the LA novels. I mean, the, the, the later LA novels, not the earlier Lloyd Hopkins ones. Or he was in Kansas City. Um, and he had this team of researchers. And what he would what they would do is they would just compile this vast amount of stuff and he would process it all secondhand. So he never really did any real field work or primary research of his own, but he had this compilation of vast amounts of material from, from his researchers, which he would then sort of synthesize in kind of a, a Tolstoyan manner, this kind of like, you know, war and peace epic, a way of inter, um, intertwining actual events, fictional events, and fictionalized versions of real events, like uh, the Night Owl Massacre in the diner, for example, in... Um, one of the L.A. Quartet novels. Um, yeah, so, and Davis didn't like that because he said, you know, you really ought, he doesn't really even know that much about Los Angeles, which I don't think is exactly true. But he's, you can, sorry, you can tell that a lot of what he's writing is kind of a, it's a kind of a gloss. It's a glossary um, on a lot of events that have happened or have been, somewhat fictionalized same thing about the, the christmas eve riot or mass beatings in the um in the oapd um downtown detention center as well i mean these are actual events that he actually spins his own way and he has fictional people inserted talking to act to real people right doctor does the same thing in ragtime right there's a mixture of of real and fictional, but at the same time, they're talking about things which are literally true. He's written it in at the same time in such a way that he said it's sort of the I kind of wish it was like this, really. So the the fictional door that he opens, the 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 crack in the reality that he opens, allows him to come up with his fictionalized version of what actually happened. That is not in that's not spiritually inconsistent with what actually did happen. And then to to basically tie everything together, he comes up with holy holy fictitious events, like so solving the Black Dahlia killer uh, mystery at the end of the Black Dahlia, in a manner that's pretty spectacular and extraordinarily unlikely, but it's artistically satisfying. And the Black Dahlia murders have never been solved. We don't know who did it. No, we don't think we do. It's it's confusing though. Like I'm not a big literature guy. I'm not a big novelist person. I don't like to read novels or anything like that. But I I think it when you really start explaining like the underlying layers of it, it gets a little bit more complex because I mean there is this obsession that ends up happening, and a lot of people sometimes just they read the end of a novel and say that's a hundred percent what happened. No matter if they added something fictitious in it, which I feel like only breeds more conspiracy theories. But we know false flags are real when it comes to major events, right? Then when you talk about like, I mean, could you not apply the same thing to individual like murders that have mysterious like there's plenty of people in the Kennedy assassination, their death is suspicious and was never investigated or never was solved. 
Is that just a random occurrence? I'll chalk some of that up to that. But then there's like, you got the Zodiac killer that was never fully solved. You got the Black Dolly murders that was never fully solved. Was this a way to keep that speculation going or an event to happen with an individual person, much like we get things like Watergate and all this that necessarily don't even have really an end conclusion to it besides Nixon being arrested? Not arrested. Uh, Nixon wasn't arrested. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, kicked or resigned. Um, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I cannot, obviously I cannot preclude that. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of crimes that go unsolved, especially when there is a great deal of police effort attached to them. Um, and again, without becoming overly paranoid or overly conspiratorial, because like you said, coincidences do happen and coincidences are just that coincidences. And it's difficult, maybe impossible, to always objectively demarcate what is a coincidence and what is not. Is that usually there's some sort of political motive not to have the thing solved. Or to go with a solution that's clearly improbable, but is politically safer if you look within the context in which the, in which the crime actually took place. Like, for example, and this is just one theory that's been proposed. If the Black Dahlia murder had something to do with an illegal abortion ring that was being run by the so-called Los Angeles Mafia, whether it was Cohn or Dragna who was doing it, the LAPD or members of the LAPD would almost have certainly been on the payroll to allow the clinic to operate. It wouldn't have been able to operate if there was not police protection for it, right? So therefore, when Elizabeth Short's body shows up in a manner that is clearly connected to the clinic in some way, though we may not always be sure in what way it was, then there's sort of a strong disincentive to actually solve the thing, right? Precisely because solving it would be too politically compromising for the OAPD. Do you remember the Finders Guild? Vaguely, the child. I can only know I can say this on YouTube, but it is real. The FBI investigated child trafficking that might have been going on within the CIA. Their end of report, if you look on the FBI's files, came to inconclusive to confirm or deny that the CIA might have had a situation arise where they could have intercepted a so much as like you had someone on your thing who you knew was trafficking people. They were monitoring them and waiting. Till there was an opportunity to grab this person, even though they knew about him for a very long time, where there were cases they could have prevented future incidences of trafficking. Their official conclusion was we came up with inconclusive evidence. I was like, the only time that the FBI or the CIA ever comes up with inconclusive evidence is if it points back to them in some aspect of things. But that's a conspiracy, though. And it's like, no, it's not. It's just evidence. You can look at so much of the past history of events. Right. And inconclusive is kind of code for. <laughs> for me is code for neither affirm nor deny and neither affirm nor deny is also in turn code for uh basically yes but you can't quote us as saying that because we didn't say that we said we can neither affirm nor deny so inconclusive can be a very sweeping term inconclusive can mean inconclusive inconclusive can also mean cannot uh, neither affirm nor deny Now, did your, I guess, perspective on that come from the Kennedy stuff, or did it come from just looking deeper, doing the parapolitics research? 
I probably the second. I mean, um, it's just that, um, it, you know, you, you know the old phrase: all the oxygen sucked out of the room. As soon as JFK comes up, that's all anyone ever wants to talk about, right? When in fact there are all kinds of other things to talk about. Um, if we're talking about that con complex of things that we call the deep state, which is really just a national security state operating domestically in a lot of ways. Um, uh, there are many things that can be looked at um, and discussed in a in a rational, alternative political manner. It doesn't just necessarily have to go back to Kennedy. I mean, it's really the other way around. It's not so much all this stuff is inspired by JFK. JFK is maybe, perhaps, one incident within a broader pattern of behavior, structures, processes, interactions, intersections. Also, I found out, I heard, I have not looked at it because I kind of promised myself to give JFK a rest, the whole Dallas thing, a rest for quite some time. Um, although I obviously talk about it in the Elroy book, because he does, um, is that the secret, apparently the secret service agent who found the pristine bullet on the... Um, Oh, my mind's uh, the stretcher. Stre thank you. The stretcher there uh, has confessed that he uh, has just after after 60 years of this has come out and said, I put it there. Uh, he said it in 97 as well, too. He just never fully stepped out as much as he did on this one. But he did fully step out is what I meant. Yeah, which I mean, it challenges the single bullet theory. But like I said, it's 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 not new. He had been quiet about it for a while but he kept, he said it in multiple interviews if you look at newspaper clippings they talk about this bullet but yeah it, 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 there's not really a whole lot changes i mean now people are more speculating on the idea of a second shooter which yeah i think it's important and i think and we were talking about this before as well is that i think a lot with the conspiracy chat um whether it's intelligent or intelligent or unintelligent useful or harmful is that I think the net effect it has is not so much proving things positively. It's about working on the kind of the collective consciousness to reduce the threshold of resistance to things. Like, is it saying, I know who killed JFK? That's not the same thing as I am prepared to accept there was a second shooter. Which one is really has, which one bespeaks more of an evolution in political culture and maturity and understanding? I mean, the second one would, in my opinion, but I just think that people don't even give a shit about the whole JFK second shooter. Oh, thing. that may be. I'm that yeah. wasn't my point. <laughs> if you're asking about the I, public's consciousness, yeah, right. I, would, I mean, I, I, I would... which which one is more useful? Really, I can prove who did it. And if you can, that's certainly not unuseful. Or, you know, if someone came out with proof, with positive proof of a second shooter, I would be prepared to accept that. I would no longer rule that out on grounds a priori. I think that's what you really want to aim for. It's not so much positive demonstration, but the more negative effect, the more indirect effect of reducing people's threshold of resistance to the possibility of an alternative version. Well, if you were going to describe the government to somebody, what? how would you do that? 
Like if you were going to describe your perspective of the government from what you've learned, how would you do that? Like I know the JFK stuff and we don't have to go into that. I don't honestly feel like talking about JFK a whole lot, but I don't even think if you boil it even back farther, you mentioned before about Howard's fuck pads, for instance. I'm going to somehow drag your book back into this conversation. But uh, if you talk about like obviously what was going on in the government back then, a lot of these individuals that were involved in our government – their idea of the government is different when you really start boiling down the layers to what some of these individuals are doing. Plenty of them were sleeping around with multiple other women. I think JFK has even got a couple that are named as well, too. That so two of them have some like suspicious deaths. Um, but if you really start boiling it down, we hear scandals that happen today and people lose their minds. Like that person was doing this, that person was doing that. What? That's crazy. Get them out. It's like, well, that's always been how this fraternity, this culture in our politics has always gone about. But we have this idea image and stored it into us from whether it was film manipulation or something of that sort, propaganda or just Hoover's G-Men like invading Hollywood, something of that sort to clarify their image as these Puritans, these people that don't sulk with the mob. They don't do any of these types of things. And you find out, no, they're, those are real. They're not conspiracies. And it kind of changes the perspective that's been instilled in you for however long you've been alive until that point you start realizing that there is corruption and the corruption has always been there and this is how the system's been running for a very long time yeah and it kind of takes us back to the real question is in it's what criminology is all about is why does crime happen i mean you know and everything else is pretty secondary like how do we define it why are there fluctuations why are there variations is it break is it reducible to Genetic factors, biological factors, social, cultural factors, gender factors, whatever, psychoanalytical factors. And really, I, I think the, the answer, and it's kind of like a, kind of a Zen-like um, one-liner, which is both profound and totally superficial at the same time, is that crime happens because it can. You freeze? Well, no. I mean, okay. how, this way, why why do people rob banks? Well, you know, Willie Horton was asked that, right? You know, why why do people rob banks? And he said, "Is because that's where the money is." Now that you cannot from that jump to everyone will be a bank robber because not everyone will be a bank robber. Even people who could possibly have it in them to be a bank robber more often than not do not become bank robbers, and that's due to a whole bunch of different variables, some of which are simply unpredictable. I may never be fully known. But the fact that if you put a lot of money in a bank, somebody at some point is probably going to try to take it because there's so much of it and they're prepared to take a risk, then do you really need much more than that? It's, it's really that almost every crime that takes place is a crime of opportunity, no matter how much premeditation there is, because you're, you're, you're trying to bring about a state of affairs, you're trying to acquire something. <laughs> that is there to be acquired because it's inherently valuable or you want it for some other reason. Um, and that's why, in a sense, there's absolutely nothing mysterious about crime whatsoever. Right. So when you say are all, the, all these guys sleeping around, well, why are all these guys sleeping around? Because there's something wrong with them? No, it's just that if you're a powerful person and you're wealthy and you have lots of connections, are you going to, in fact, be encountering or being able to acquire people to sleep with more than the average person would? Yes or no? Answer is yes. So therefore, it happens. It's called the downside of prosperity. Maybe, or the upside if you're, you know, if you're if you're enjoying it. But yeah, 
but you could say it's the downside of prosperity. Well, it's like Bill Gates didn't just randomly start saying, I want to start shooting a particle, a missile particle up into the atmosphere to dissipate particles or something like that to dim the sun. That's real. That's his idea. But you don't just start off, you know, having this idea for a Microsoft company and then slowly develop there. It's just because he's got so much things, so much money. He's got the ability. He's got the money, like literally a Dr. Evil type from Austin Powers. Yeah, right. And if you've gotten to that point, and, now, and then you can you can make kind of a Marxist argument. Oh well, all this is related to capitalism, right? Because capitalism is an economic system that permits and possibly is even predicated upon the assumption that what will eventually happen will be hyper concentrations of wealth and capital resources. And then if you're in that kind of system, then these kind of opportunities take place. But then again, that gets us back to the the sort of the, the, the elemental problem, which is that. Is it capitalism causing this, or is capitalism simply the state of affairs with it with its own qualities and characteristics that presents the possibility for a certain set of options and opportunities? Whereas in let's say in a feudal society or a primitive hunter and gathering society, you can still deviate because there are deviations, because every time you have a law or a rule or a right or a ritual, then you've conceptualized in theory, in potentia, the violation of that, the transgression against that rule. And therefore, for everything that's articulated positively, you've created the conditions for the, the enactment of the negative. The transgression against the law, right? And so really, uh, when we talk about crime, is it not in, in one sense, it's simply somebody breaking a rule for whatever reason, whatever their motives are. And therefore, the question then becomes, again, and which is what Elroy does a very good job of, and some really good, better parapolitical investigators like Peter Dale Scott do. If you go through one of uh, Peter's books, what he spends a lot of time doing is simply proving who knew who else. Right. And you realize, and you know, like, you know, the, the death of JFK, right, the, the death in Dallas book, you read it and you say, you can see he, you know, he doesn't really come out and say exactly who did what. What he says is, is that all the people who've been named by other people all, in fact, knew each other. And that if you've got this off the books, not illegal, but not formally structured network of people who have the ability to talk to each other and meet with each other then you have detected a space within which something like this could have been conceived of, planned, and implemented. And that's always a problem with conspiracy theories, and DeLillo faces this in Libra, and he does a beautiful job with it, and I make a great deal out of the fact, the way that he handled it in both my false spectacle of the false flat book and in Howard's fuck pad. Uh, because I talk about Delillo a lot in that one too, because Elroy talks about Delillo so much when he writes the Underworld um, US, USA, Underworld USA trilogy. Is that it's really the, the point where every conspiracy theory tends to break down is the actual physical mechanics of the event. Like when you say that, um, Oswald was being played as a patsy. 
Okay. Which is one very common feature of the, the Dallas conspiracy discourse, right? You've got to nail down to prove your point, not that you're wrong, but to actually make it convincing. What, at what point did he become a patsy? What was the approach? What was the moment of contact, right? When, at what precise moment did the rubber hit the road to make the thing happen? And you can talk about all kinds of allegiances, all kinds of alliances, all kinds of convergences, all kinds of coincidences, all kinds of meetings, all kinds of parallel structures. And all those things can be true to varying degrees of uh, empirical verification, right? But you've still got to get the thing down to the moment in which the thing actually happens. And it's very difficult to do that. And it's the same is true for criminal law as well. It's very difficult to do that unless you've really got the empirical evidence. And so many conspiracy theories, of course, have certain gaps in their empirical evidence. And one of the ways they have gaps in their empirical evidence is the precise moment. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got, and I always tell this to anybody who asks, was from Peter. When I said, you know, I'm writing this book called Spectral of the False Flag, and I I don't want to talk about the Zapruder film, but at some point I'm going to have to talk about the Zapruder film because Stone keeps on talking about the Zapruder film, you know, back to the left, back to the left, back to the left. Remember that scene, you know, when he goes and when, you know, Costner goes on for like 10, five minutes just saying back and to the left. And he writes back and he says, I give you one piece of advice, Eric. He said, whatever you do, do not ever talk about the mechanics of the shooting. Because that's the black hole in which, one, you have to speculate, and two, if you speculate but get it wrong, then the whole thing kind of falls apart, right? What you can focus on is what you can more or less prove, which is Oswald was really close friends with George Morgenschult, and Morgenschult was very closely connected to David Atlee Phillips, and Morgan Schultz was a CIA asset that worked a great deal in Haiti, uh, Cuba, and the other parts of the Caribbean. Okay. And then you say, what are the odds? Or, okay, well, you know, we do have questions about what happened in JFK. What about this? What are the odds that Oswald was a really good friend of somebody who was a really good friend with David Atlee Phillips, who was basically the Western Hemisphere director of CIA operations and counter and counterintelligence operations, and was very heavily involved in what we call black ops and psyops. I mean, you know, his gang basically ran the the coup d'état in Guatemala in 1954, by means that included a whole bunch of basically what we call now call today misinformation. Does that prove there's a conspiracy? No, absolutely does not. But is it a really tantalizing set of convergences? Yeah. But do you think that's intended on purpose? <clears throat> What's intended on purpose? So like one of these events, for instance, if we take the Kennedy assassination, something that's been going on for 60 years now, and everyone's got independent theories, and you could really have a 
fun time if you're new and you jump into the research community. You will be sucked into a pit, a, a bunch of old folks yelling at each other and telling you, that, no, this isn't real, or debunking each other. You're in a constant loop process. Absolutely. And that's one reason he says, don't look at the don't look at the damn Zapruder film because, <laughs> because every time you read it, you somebody say, oh, no, that's not what it is. It's some, someone change that. And here I am. I'm, I'm not an expert on film or photography and or film editing. I know a little bit about it, but, you know, kind of academic knowledge. And I say, well, geez, how do I know that hasn't been looped? I cannot prove that it hasn't been. On the other hand, I do not know that it has been either, right? I, I simply look at it and say, well, this is what I say. Richard Feynman, they got Richard Feynman to look at, you know, the, the, the physicist. He looked and he says, well, it's obviously what's happened is is that his head jerks down, then jerks back, which means that he's been hit from the back, but his body's reacting convulsively, right? I said, oh, no, 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 no. He was looking at the looped version, right? Which is really coming from the front, but making it look like there's a convulsion as a response to being shot in the back. And when you reach that point, if you're smart, you say, I'm just not talking about this. Do I really even need this? I mean, it'd be great if you could, in the eyes and mind of God, prove it absolutely and eternally and cosmically what happened. Well, since we explained the, the true crime stuff and the fascination with that, I mean, I to be, to be 100% honest, I mean, I've walked into this thing first looking into the Kennedy assassination, speaking to a bunch of experts on it. I, I would love to redo those, um, mostly because I didn't know. I thought it was like true crime, like set it up for me, show me how it happened. And let me just be astounded by the fact that I do believe that there's something more going on here. But now that I've researched through thousands and thousands and thousands of documents, just trying to piece all this together, I started to realize that it's not necessarily the government is trying to keep this as one of those controversial events forever because of the fact you're just going to get into researching and you're going to come up with nothing and spend most of your life researching it. And then you're going to end up passing away with no answers being solved. There is a piece of that, but the piece of that is true crime has an ending. These mysteries, these murders that people listen to have an ending. The fascination is that adrenaline and that dopamine that comes from researching and getting interested into that. But if you look at the Kennedy assassination, the reason why there's infinity smoking guns and everyone's like, this person did it and this recording did it. Well, the week of or the week before everything started going all down, like, for instance, when the driver changes the route to whatever – it probably happened the week before that. It probably was a relayed message and all this started occurring and everything started working in motion. But you don't have any you don't have anything. There's nothing there. They wouldn't keep it there. They wouldn't put it on a file. They wouldn't have a recording or probable cause that you can choose Hoover. You can choose this. You just everything around it is all these connections and lines where they all add up to the same in the end. Either the mob did it, the CIA did it doesn't matter. You can have all your evidence in one thing. And I realized this isn't necessarily just a government ploy to keep people researching it forever. There might be a bit of that, but I think it's the fact is because we don't have the, the document, the note, the recording, the evidence to say, I want you to do this, the official transaction. Right. There's nothing yeah. there. That's what I mean about the official transaction and the official transaction will never be there. Maybe because it's off the books. Right. But, but it also deal goes to the structural, um, nature of the action itself or the action that you think is the action you want to make, even if it isn't. And what I was about, and I was going to say a few minutes ago before we, you know, because uh, there are just so many side roads to go down, as always happens when we have these discussions, is that the way that DeLillo gets around it is that, you know, to, and you can tell that the Elroy is structuring Underworld Trilogy on Libra because 
when you read Libra, you have one chapter about something, and then the next chapter, every second chapter is Oswald's story narrated in the first person. So chapter 24 could be about anything. Chapter 25 will be Oswald talking about what it's like moving back to New Orleans, for example, right? And so, and when it gets closer and closer and closer to the moment, I mean, like the day before the CIA's decided that they have to contact him to turn him into a double agent to infiltrate the local anti, uh, allegedly anti-Castro squad. Who are really well the allegedly pro Castro squad who are really a bunch of anti-Castro fanatics, right? As double agents. We don't get that. The Oswald chapter ends just at the moment we know because of what the conspirators are doing, they're going to contact him. Then there's a chapter about something else. But in that chapter, the person, which is always usually in the third person, meets this guy called Leon. And that's Oswald. It's the first time Oswald's been described from the outside by another character in the novel. Right? And then the chapter after that is back to Oswald, where he's already inside the unit. But what's left out is the moment of contact. Is that the one who met in Miami? There was a person that talked about meeting a Leon Oswald with a mobster figure? Pa there are several stories like that. I, I offhand, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but what no one ever really nails down is the moment. Like I said, it's the moment of contact, the the precise moment of intersection between the conspiracy and the patsy, right? And that's how Delillo gets around it. He sets it right up to Oswald could have been slotted in that spot, right? But then he he lies it. He skips over it by having somebody meet this guy called Leon, who is Oswald, all gussed up with the uh, pro, you know, the, the 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 Castro equipment and ideology and literature and stuff like that. So he's already on the inside, but we don't see the moment at which he's approached in order to be recruited to go into the inside. That never happens. It's a blank space. Because and then the story just resumes. Wouldn't it be speculation if you tried to finish off or trying to fill in those gaps? It could be speculation, but it but the whole but you know half the whole half the novel is fictitious in the sense that Underworld USA is fictitious in that it's it's a fictitious writings of something that the author believes may have happened. Yeah. But why can't you write that scene? I mean, if you've written all these other scenes about you know three ex CIA deputy directors sitting in a basement in a retirement home in in Missouri, talking about how they're going to pull this thing off, the, the coup d'etat off, right? Uh, the fall, actually, it's a false flag operation. How they're going to pull the false flag operation off? Why can't you write this scene? And the reason why you cannot write this scene is because the whole theory of the conspiracy rests upon what Peter makes explicit, which is about convergences. In other words, we do not know what's happening inside the black box, right? But we know that there is a black box. And from this black box came this event, which is Kennedy gets shot in Dallas. You're, well, you're leading a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Make him drink, yeah. Which, like, I think, honestly, in my opinion, from what I've understood about James Elroy through this conversation, is I think James Elroy is culturally significant. Oh, yes. 
I know. Don't yep. look at the clock. I'm not ending it. I'm just saying. I think no, no, no. I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm looking the other direction. Don't I worry think, about it. The I clock's on this this side. <laughs> I think he's culturally significant because of the fact that he's leading you up to a moment or an interest in something. And if anybody, which most people probably would do, is try and understand and maybe look up the actual events of that and then dive into. But that also could mean you look at it a bad way, too. You're getting people sucked into the Kennedy assassination. That's going to lead them down a well of transgressions. And everyone just wants the ending in today's society, which I think is causing people now to want to do the legwork to move in that direction of understanding what was going on. Yeah, so I mean, I think if you read him, if you read the USA Underworld trilogy portion of my book, uh, discussing Elroy's, then I say I cover just about everything that he's written. Um, is that it's really it's a pay on, it's an act of homage to homage to Delillo, who does that very thing very very self consciously, right? He said we can talk all around it, but we cannot approach the thing in and of itself. partly because the discourse functions as a discussion about the thing rather than the direct transparency of the thing itself. Because as soon as you try to put it together, it starts sliding apart. It starts sliding out of your hands, through your fingers. I mean, do you think it's important that – I mean, I see, it, it's hard for me because it's hard to get people to even read today. Like I'm one, yeah, of those, one of those individuals, and I think people honestly just feel more satisfied when someone gives them the answers to things. Yeah, but and I then, think, they, then they vote on it, thumbs up or thumbs down. But I mean when we talk about like – let's take it more back to what I was mentioning earlier about like a, what your depiction of government would be. Obviously, your perspective on it is based on the information and the research you have done on multiple events to get the perspective that you have now. Much like for me, I had to dive into various different things of propaganda from the Vietnam War, influence into Hollywood, whatever you want to say. How do you get people to the point of understanding that not only – Today's problems and cultural problems are not boiled down to political things, but this is how this is a structural thing that has always gone down. Well, I think probably what you would do, and I've been doing this more, is simply assume that the state is what we call the democratic state is really an administrative state. And that the things driving it are really what we call, historians call the the long durée or the long duration or the long time cycle of concepts like biopower, biopolitics, um, the risk society, uh, prob- probabilistic society, the, the whole range of intellectual discourses, including many things actually connected in a very banal way with the insurance industry, right? For ways of calculating risk and therefore compensation and the setting of premiums. Uh, it, it's it's society that that is one of the things uh, Elroy touches on this as well, and he actually got me thinking. It's one of the things he wrote that really, really got me thinking and changed my thinking about certain things, is that he's written, of course, a new uh, series of books, um, beginning with Perfida, and then the second volume is This Storm, which is sort of like yet one more LA series, but it's sort of like the prelude what happened in the years immediately prior to the um, 
L.A. Quartet, the first volume of which is the Black Dahlia Murder, right? So the L.A. Quartet begins in 46, 47, immediately after the First World War. The new prequel that he's writing, which I think in a lot of ways actually doesn't work, uh, is about the same characters in the L.A. Quartet during the war itself, from 39 to 45. Especially, actually, forty-one to forty-five. I don't think I know what that is. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it doesn't really have a name, but there are two. So, as of this moment, there are two, and the third one's coming out. There are two volumes: the Perfida and this Storm. And of course, it starts off with talking about the internment of the Japanese uh, in California, oh, along the entire West Coast during World War II, immediately after Pearl Harbor, where we wrongly imprisoned a bunch of Japanese. Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the things that he talks about, because he turns Dudley Smith, you know, the, the, the Professor Moriarty of the LAPD in the LA Quartet into one of the main characters. So we get to hear Dudley's thoughts reconstructed uh, from the inside out. Um, is He's meditating a lot about the parallels between fascism and communism or between Nazism and Stalinism, right? And what he comes to realize is that it's basically two versions of the same thing, and that it's just totalitarianism, and that the two sides, Germany and Russia, actually have far more in common with each other than either of them do with the United States. So they should actually be natural allies, because what they both share, whatever their secondary differences, their primary objective is identical which is the destruction of a liberal bourgeois society and the creation of a super totalitarian, hyper-administrative eugenics state. Right. And I think if you're talking about long duration of history, I think that's what modernity is. I think modernity politically, modernity is in large part a quest for a completely self-stabilizing administrative structure that's safe and meaning is totally adverse to risk and is and secondarily is able to actually calculate and predict risk in a way that will always be able to continue to function no matter what so a kind of a political immortality and i think that if we really were looking at the deep history of political modernity we'd be paying a lot more attention to things like utilitarianism Neo-utilitarianism, eugenics theory, social Darwinism, th th the Fabians, the one-worlders, uh, the H.G. Wells squad, all that sort of thing. Because what they are all doing, in a sense, is fueling simultaneously both the right and the left. So ideology matters a great deal less than we often think. Because we're, what we're really looking at are bio, biopolitical structures. Well, we're like a – we're chasing a carrot basically is the whole thing. Everything that we're yeah. fighting over is not the real instructional problem that's causing all the chaos in the first place. Right. I mean you mentioned with the eugenics thing. I mean there's a history of that when it comes to just insane asylums that people are more willing to accept. And they're willing to accept the Japanese internment camp thing because of the fact that there is a 
racial thing. Like if you said a bunch of white people were being locked up into a camp, a lot of people would either call that a conspiracy and all this type of stuff. But I don't understand like the double edged coin thing. It's the same thing. Like if we look at um Castro plots, the assassination plots on Castro. People are willing to accept that. But then if you start talking about that, they might have used one of those plots or had an idea to get the president, not saying who did it. I'm just saying if you even mention that at all, people really roll their eyes to conspiracy. I'm like, how are we accepting one thing, but we're not accepting another thing? People would accept that mobsters sleep around and have all these random safe houses where they fuck women. But if you say people in our government have those they would go, no, no, it's not happening. It's like, where's the, where's the line? It's like, where they're, they're the same individual. We're all the same species. I feel like there shouldn't be a line there, but it's supposed to be about this idea of respect or this myth that has been created. Well, if the evolution of the administrative state is linked with a biopolitical s- s- structure of power, then you have two parallel discourses evolving dialectically or symbiotically um, or both combination of dialectic and symbiotic symbiosis, which is deviancy versus normality, right? And if you look at the history of persecution and discrimination, what happens in the late 18th and certainly takes off in the early 19th century by the early 19th century, is the stigmatization of deviant groups like the black, the homosexual, women, um, religious minorities, that sort of thing. The gay Anti-Semitism. Blades. You remember yeah. that? The magazine yeah. Gay Blades? Yeah, absolutely. All that stuff. So, and I think what that discourse does is it, it installs a kind of a structural polarity between what's normal and what's abnormal between inside and outside. So basically, I think the American attitude is, well, yeah, because South America or Central America, Caribbean, right? It's south of the Rio Grande, right? That's where chaos begins. Normality begins north of the Rio Grande, which is North America, right? So yeah, I can see a bunch of crazy, irrational conspirators running around Cuba trying to bump each other off, because that's the sort of thing that happens in that kind of deviant, transgressive, chaotic space. But... You can't import that into our space because our space is immune to deviancy because our space is the space of normality, discursively defined by the structures that regulate the difference between the abnormal and the normal. I mean, part of it is is really just asking people to accept as normal things that they are intuitively inclined to perceive as abnormal. Which is kind of a culture shock. What subject matter would you consider in the general public's view to be abnormal? Uh, don't quite understand. So, like, for instance, if you're going to give me some couple of topics of things that you would consider that people probably would just not even, you wouldn't engage in a conversation about with some people. For instance, I'll give you an example. You mentioned his name a couple of times before, Peter Dare Scott's work. A lot of people don't look into or know a lot of the things that he talks about. It's like when I speak with someone about Covert Action Magazine and they're talking about drug trafficking or something that's going on in another country that the CIA is involved in or something like that. People don't know that. People don't know the history of that. People don't know about the whole Gary Webb book about the cocaine alliance. They don't know that. Yeah, Dark Alliance. So, so yeah. when you start talking about it, 
everything is way too far-fetched where nobody's going to pay attention who's part of the general public. I would consider that being a discussion that people you wouldn't want to bring up to, to the general public because they're not there yet. Uh, well, I can think of a couple of things, but it's going to be problematic because the very fact that I mentioned them is going to sound like people don't want to consider them. So therefore, the whole thing sounds repulsive. So therefore, I'm a deviant. And therefore, I have unsaid the the worthwhile worth. I have devalued the val. I have devalued the value of my speech by bringing it up. But I will throw this one thing out because I've noticed it and it's been irritating me a great deal lately. <clears throat> How many Ukrainian military personnel have with them? or have engraved on their bodies, Nazi insignia and paraphernalia. I haven't heard about that. Well, that's a good reason why you haven't heard about it. So yeah, the Nazification of the Ukrainian military. Let's, let's leave it at that. That's something in which it can definitely be verified, at least up to a point. How much, to what degree, and why, you can debate about that. Okay, But the phenomena is there, and no one really wants to talk about it. Well, I think it's because you can't talk about the Russia-Ukraine issue with – there's a fear that you're going to step on someone who has a wildly different perspective on it. I've talked to people who are pro what Russia is doing and people that are pro what Ukraine's doing. But overall, in the end, you can get people to the same subject matter by discussing that war is the most profitable industry of the United States of America. Plenty of companies make things. And the fact that a bunch of people were happy that we finally got out of the war of Afghanistan only a month or so later, less than a month later, we're begging for going to aid and assist Ukraine, which is another issue. Right. Yeah. And of course, the Ukrainians have now recently made a push to actually open up Ukraine to be a uh, world-class weapons production hub. So it sort of looks like at this moment, but I mean, things are moving so fast. And again, the same thing. We There's so many things we don't know about. I think I told you that my old doctoral supervisor, Robert Scribner, always told me told me once, he said, don't try to figure out any contemporary event until tw at least 25 years after it's over, right? Because you're, you, you, it's no, no one knows enough, all right? So the fact is no one knows enough. And people themselves doing it or on the inside don't even know enough because things are changing too because – um, there are multiple agents, actors, many of whom have shifting identities, engaging in all kinds of different and perhaps even contradictory actions, short, medium, and long term. But it sort of looks like what we're trying to do is normalize and semi-institutionalize a forever war situation, right? Like we had in Afghanistan for about more than 10 years. They sort of want Ukraine to be the second Afghanistan. But if you're simply talking about taboo subjects, right, which is what the conversation was really about, I would say look at the relationship, it would, the thing called the Azov or Azov Brigade, its imprecation into the Ukrainian military, now probably the Ukrainian government, and its correlation with um, affiliation for Nazi insignia. Because, of course, one of the arguments the Russians have made, and everyone think, in the West largely thinks it's a cynical bullshit maneuver, is that they wanted to protect Russian minorities in Ukraine, which are the majority, ethnic majorities in those regions of Ukraine that Russia has annexed, including the Crimea, of protecting them from um, Nazi persecution. 
And that's not a pro-Russian statement either. I'm simply saying that that is what the Russian rhetoric is. And the Russian rhetoric at this issue, at least, may correspond to a reality that's at least partially true, but that is absolutely forbidden to talk about in the mainstream. So that if you throw it out there, people will not know what you're talking about because they haven't heard about the Azov Brigade. But you haven't heard about the Azov Brigade for very good reasons, which is that it's inconvenient that it exists from the Western perspective. <laughs> Do you believe it was manufactured this way, or do you believe that it was just kind of unintended consequences? Uh, like I said, I'm not going to – I will not even pretend to believe I can understand anything meaningful about the Ukrainian okay. mess until at least 25 years later. Well, we can just boil it down to what we're talking about like with writers like James Elroy that are talking about subjects that are fictitious but have maybe a sliver of something in it. I mean, the fact is it gets caught as a fictitious work or it's a fantasy work, whatever you want to say. But for or a historical novel. Exactly. But there are some cases where something can be so extreme. Writers could write something that the public is not 100 percent in on, like we talk about drug trafficking or something of that sort, like a Gary Webb book or something or Peter Dale Scott's work in Vietnam or something of that sort. You see that that gets lumped as conspiracy writings or what you would call more taboo subject matter. And now you have a division between the people that do research and do read that type of literature compared to the people that don't. And now you have the divide. That's an unintended consequence, or do you believe that was constructed by the government to lead to those points where you can't have a, a rational conversation about some of these subjects and they go largely unlooked over? Like when's the last time, you know, the last exposure I would consider would be the church committee. But we don't have any of that happening. We don't have an overall look into what these agencies and dr drastic overreach of what they're doing. But it's because there is no need for it. There's no wanting for it because the only one thing is coming from one side that has largely been dis not distorted, but cut off from the general public's uh, view of the way things work. Okay, I'll give you an example. This is an actual example that happened to me about maybe a year ago. I was, I was part of a podcast that uh, Jonathan Marshall, the uh, investigative journalist, was running. And he, of course, is was the author, along with Peter Dale Scott, of um, Cocaine Politics. Which is one of the expose books about the the um, contras and the um, penetration of the cocaine industry into North into the United States. Um, and he said all of his books have been sold well. All of his books have been publicized. Every time he wrote anything, he would get multiple reviews, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But everybody paid attention. His most recent book. Um, which came out, which is about basically the crimes of U.S. presidents. You know, basically every single president, he's only talking about from Truman onwards. And he said every single president has had a major scandal of some kind. And of course, he talks about, he starts off with Truman talking about his connection with the Pendergast political machine in Kansas City, for example. And he goes through all, and he goes through Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, everybody. Um, then he doesn't leave, and he goes all the way up to Trump, obviously. Uh, and I think he finished the book before Biden got elected, so he doesn't know about Biden, but we know that's kind of like a daily occurrence now, right? So, but he said every single president of the United States has, has been implicated in something which, looking at it at least at first glance, would seem to rise to the level of impeachable offense, okay? And he said no one has talked about his book. No reviews, no comments, nothing. Completely and totally ignored across the board. 
that's kind of similar with RFK Jr.'s book about Fauci. Um, it was a bestseller on Amazon, and it had no reviews. And because I don't know the book, I know Fauci, obviously, but. It was exposing a lot of Fauci's past and some of the issues that went on with the current situation. But I won't say because it'll get us flagged off YouTube. But I mean, that's what I bring up with a lot of people because, you know, a lot of people in the Kennedy stuff that primarily are left people, left wing but I don't think it's it's like old school Democrat style. I don't necessarily like some of them have the progressiveness in them. But I think a lot of like our media sources now they're and they don't agree with me about this. But I think a large a lot amount of them are left leftists or very progressive thinking because they censor a lot of issues. And it's weird because you would think that a lot of the issues that get censored on the from the left big tech companies are issues like that would be fighting totalitarianism, which is kind of what the left was kind of built upon. I think what's interesting, and again, without taking sides, is as best I can. Um, I'm apolitical. So will, so I'm if anyone listens to this, they'll think I'm taking a side somehow. No, but I mean, look at the way that that conspiracy. Okay, see, here's the thing about conspiracy theory. It, once Donald Trump got elected, there was sort of a redemonization of conspiracy theory. Correct. In other words, MAGA, Trump, all those guys—they're conspiracy theorists. And it's debased speech, it's an irrational speech, it's a deluded speech, it's misinformation, misdirection, disinformation, all that stuff. And that therefore there was a new second wave demonization of conspiracy theory. And maybe that's what happened to Jonathan Marshall's book. It was something they say, oh, he's talking about all US president all US presidents are, are criminals. Well, that's conspiracy theory, right? So we'll just chuck it in the bin and not talk about it. It's part of that wave, right? But yet at the same time, as far as I know, Donald Trump has been labeled a co-conspirator in two major political conspiracies, the international conspiracy of Russiagate and the domestic conspiracy of January 6th. Aren't these conspiratorial narratives? Well, I think they are. And yet, but at the same time, conspiracy theory is 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 taken today as, as a source of intellectual deviancy how do you square that, that circle well it's a largely trying to be demonized on the factor of it's considered that it's all misinformation any type of conspiracy talk is false information that is rooted either if it's they believe that it's incentive from another country to do so or it's just a bunch of wackos on the internet and the internet has now been this free base of information that has allowed people to have these obscure views which i don't think i mean i think we've always had obscure views i think there's been plenty of people and plenty of history to say that people have been documenting it for a very long time i'm just surprised at the willingness to want to go and listen and perceive what that person is trying to communicate with someone. We don't have any discussion about that at all. You talk about information, right? You, whether it's right or wrong, you have those conversations happen and you try and sort out what best fits. I wouldn't say your perspective, but everyone's got a bias. You're going to be more than happy to listen to. And I've talked to like the people from the skeptics community and I've most of my conversations are people that don't think that way. They try and look and analyze a lot of this stuff like Larry Hancock, great researcher. But he would get lumped into the conspiracy room just because of the fact of the topics he discusses, even though he comes up from a strictly documental and factual base. Yeah. yeah. And let me ask you this. I mean, the January 6th thing, of course, it's an ongoing event, so I'm not going to comment on it. And there may be evidence of something. Um, but let me put this. There's certainly evidence of something. You can still argue as to what that thing actually is, but we won't talk about that because we don't have to because it's already been talked about. 
But as far as the Russiagate thing is concerned, how many people who do not like Donald Trump for perfectly good reasons also believe that he's a Russian agent? A lot of people did, but from what I've seen, even the CIA, the FBI, and the media that was slandering him, calling him a Russian asset, they had no proof of it. Right. But is it not, in fact, an item of dogmatic truth that he is? I think it's a contentious point in our country when that discussion gets brought up. Right. But it's not been proven. And what is it but a conspiracy? Oh, yeah. You know, if you simply say that uh, Oswald was a patsy, what's the, what's the structural difference between that and saying Trump was a Russian asset? I mean, yeah, I mean, they boil down into the subjects where people start putting you in a category. Right. So I'm not getting your point then. Well, I guess the, my point is, is that we conspiracy theory has been redemonized because it's seen to be a prop of maga yeah. maggots are conspiracy theorist nuts right i mean they're the new political deviant because it's sort of like this universal generic political irrationalism whatever the merits of that that is the way that it actually works within our culture mainstream political culture and media culture Yet the whole Russia gate thing and Russia and Putin, apart from Putin, Trump as a Putin Russia asset reflects a deeply conspiratorial view. But yet that seems to be orthodoxy, even though it's quite unproven. I'm not saying it's false. I'm saying it is, as, as far as I know, been unproven. I think the re-demonization is actually worse than the demonization in the first place um, because of the fact that it's caused violence. Not saying with the Jan 6 stuff, which that was a horrible event. I think that was just violence in general was wrong. But I still think there's evidence supporting that there's FBI people that were involved in some of those things, if you want to say agent provocateurs. But I've also watched a woman get maced in the face and hit with a wooden two-by-four because she had a make bitcoin great again hat on that was in the same red color and white lettering that trump's is and people thought it was a trump thing that's really dangerous in our society if we get to a point where we're causing violence and the thing that you're violent or mad over is not the actual thing that you thought you should be mad over and one of the things that i talked about in um, howard view from howard's fuck <laughs> let's bring it back is, to view from Howard's sort fuck. of yeah is sort of that um one of the things that Elroy does, I, I don't know how self-conscious he was when he when he wrote this, but you can the idea is certainly there, the concept is there. Is that and of course he doesn't really use the phrase bad white men, he uses bad men or white men, and I put them together into bad white men. Um, is that a lot of these guys we're talking about, you know, like why do conspiracies happy happen? Why do what does crime happen? All the you know, crime is just something you do because you can do it and just happens to be criminal. Um, is that uh, the bad white men of the deep state, and I call them sort of like the, the parapolitical stormtroopers of the deep state, is, and the way he discusses them, right, but also the way that you can validate them in history, at least up to a degree, by empirical evidence, is that they're, they're sort of, um, uh, I talk a lot about Marx and Max Stirner's concept of the lumpen proletariat, 
which are sort of the 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 leg uh, Elroy calls them the leg breakers of history. Uh, the, the the sort of the irregular paramilitary semi-organized grouping squads that go out and bash heads and organizing organize riots or burn down individual buildings and kind of um, in a semi-organized quasi-terrorist sort of way. And I think that in going right the way back to ancient Rome and even, even before Rome in ancient Greece, uh, whenever you have a, a demos of some kind, which means that power and identity become very fluid and relatively open, unlike, like, say, in, let's say, a, a feudalistic or a caste society, um, these things become political strategies. They become techniques that can become used because the system is structured in such a way that you've got these weapons to pick up and use to do to accomplish your goals. And I think one of the things that the whole Trump, January 6th thing, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, both sides, and you talk about the woman getting maced and hit simply because she had a red hat with some white letters on it, on it, is reflecting that I think we're beginning to recognize more. Maybe we're becoming less naive about the fact that a lot of political power, a lot of political actions are carried out in this kind of crypto guerrilla war irregular combatant sort of way and i think a lot of what elroy talks about in both the oa quartet and the underworld usa trilogy uh is an appreciation unthought out not really systematized i try to to complete the thoughts and make them more formal when i'm discussing his novels in my exegesis of his work um my gloss of his work is that these are really mainstream mainstay things that are not really does not really rise to the level of consciousness and of course as we all know and it's almost a truism to, to say it but social media has so much to do with this because you know i think i wrote at some point somewhere i said the great thing about social media is that absolutely anyone can be a terrorist today all you have to do is go online and provoke something So it's about the plurality, not not just the increase of political violence, it's the proliferation of the opportunities to commit political violence. I think we, if we we mentioned you mentioned something earlier about banks and bank robbers, um, I think if you put the tools in front of someone in a in the way that we're at in our society right now, they're going to become violent especially if you put the gear in front of them to use the tools to become violent. And I think that this other side or the side that does become violent, the other side reacts with violence as well, too. Sure. Reciprocity, reciprocal violence, you which, can't... of course, will, will should escalate over time, given the internal dynamic of it. I mean, but that's a really good way of thinking about it. I said, if we are becoming more politically violent, even if it's restricted to the symbolic space of, let's say, virtual reality or social media, but, but can definitely have physical manifestations. Right? If we are becoming a more politically violent society, is it because of any great changes in us, or is it rather instead 
we simply have more people having the tools to be able to engage in acts of political violence. I think it's the more tools. Quite possibly. I think if you talk about trying to pe have people think of a deeper level of consciousness when it comes to some of these topics and some of these areas that would be called taboo, I don't think you can do that because a lot of these get linked into emotion and there's no rationalizing with emotion. Right. Well, there's no compromising with it. Yeah. And especially since we're entering into a politics of, of affectivity. I mean, I think it was somebody, I think it was Charles Taylor or somebody who said not too long ago, he said, I really cannot believe this is happening in my lifetime. We've come to the point where our political truth is simply out loud said, it's what I happen to believe. And that's your proof. Your proof is that you believe it. No, I think what I really appreciate about your perspective is I think it's very similar to how I think about things. And I think that sense of – Oh, well, that means I'm right. Well, yeah, it does. Uh, but I don't think it's it comes – I wouldn't call it nihilism or I wouldn't call it um, – I what you called it before in our last conversation, being a realist. And I think that comes from not necessarily choosing a side left or right, but kind of just looking at the factors bare that they both have scars and scabs. And I think a lot of people don't look that, at it that way. I mean, I, I probably think you would probably vote probably an independent if you were going to vote in general, or you just wouldn't vote. Um, just on the factor of some, well, you gave me a smile. I'm guessing what? What you? Vote? Well, I know I can I can you know maybe make some money off this by getting people to like you know place a bet. No. <laughs> and, and then and then I'll, I'll tell everyone what the answer is, but that's okay. Uh, Not going to happen. I just think that obviously. You know, you boil it down to deeper conversations. I mean, have you looked and in your experience, I mean, do you feel that you want to interact more with the general public or more people about certain topics of this? Like, do you ever want to speak out like at a conference or something of that sort about your book? If you're going to be talked to, if you're going to be. Um, I'll college. talk about the book. That's I'm fine. Happy talking about the book. Uh, the problem is, is that. And again, it sounds like such a cheap truism, but it's becoming more dangerous to talk in public because anything i say i like you know for example if um i i quote see here's the, here's the one of the problems with the book okay and i think this okay i'm this is a trigger warning that should You're come really, with the book. you didn't even denounce trump earlier i'm surprised no well no that, well that's my problem why you had a chance to denounce him and you you had a chance to denounce him and you didn't. You had three milliseconds. You, which proves that you support him, okay? Problem with the book is that I'm repeating a lot of Elroy's language. And Elroy's language, apart from the F word a lot of time, he uses a lot of homophobic and racist and, and, and sexist slang because his characters do, right? So he's a classic example of the, I'm not going to make pe my characters talk the way that people want them to talk. I'm going to make him talk the way that I thought they would talk if they were the type of character that I have in mind who existed in 1955 in Havana. Right. That's what he does. Um, and I think the problem is, is that that's no longer acceptable. It's no longer acceptable to report in an unmediated, unadulterated manner, the language of a different mindset, the vocabulary of a different mindset. Um, and that there is, in fact, I mean, the, I think there may be a possibility that my book will even have a little trigger warning on it which is not a bad idea, simply saying that please be aware that you are going to be reading. If you read this book, you will read Elroy's words. Elroy's words are not my words. I do not talk that way. But his character, neither does Elroy, but his characters do. And that therefore you're going to be encountering this stuff. So, you know, be prepared. Remember I was talking to you about insurance and the calculation of risk? 
Well, this is a good example of it. No one wants to get sued for inducing emotional trauma by having someone read a book that's got the N-word in it every, every third sentence. I had a guy on my show who studied the history of cursing. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And that's an a, interesting topic, actually. He wrote a book. It is very interesting. Um, I had a few people on my show who are academics who studied that. But this guy's one of his books in the summary of his book, when you, when you read it and everything, has the N-word. And it uses it not a good light, but it's so triggering. I asked him, how'd you get that on a book to be able to sell? And he was like, because when people start reading it, they realize that it's more than that, but it's not getting stuck on the words, which we do get stuck on the words. Because the words are signals. Now, but is that a sign of society evolving, though, if we get stuck on those words? Um, well, I mean, I think we always have. I mean, my father used to be a classics and English high school teacher. And one of the things that always made him depressed is it happened every five or 10 years. He'd go into this deep depression because there would be a movement to remove Huckleberry Finn from uh, the school libraries or from the, uh, re from the curriculum in uh, American literature classes. And he really thought that was wrong. And he said he, he never used the effort. Absolutely never under any circumstance. But he simply said, yeah, but this is Mark Twain and this is Huck Finn. And this is like the state of Missouri in 1850. So everyone is going to be using the N-word. Even if you were an abolitionist, you'd still use the N-word probably. Right. And um, he had always broken. But I also look back at the way he would feel about it. And I understood his point of view. But at the same time, because I'm changing too, because I'm aging. And uh, he's receding more into my past. And I simply say, yeah, but I mean, it's really naive to get upset about that today. Because that is the thing that people do get upset about. They really do not want to encounter a word. They do not want to read in their space as they understand their space to, to be. Where you get into cancel culture. I'm like that. And, I, and the cancel is on the left and the right. I mean, I'm not taking sides on that one. I'm yeah. just saying. But cancel culture is something in and of itself. I'm like that with the word liberal. Whenever I hear that word, it either makes me chuckle or it hurts my ears. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't even know to boil the politics down to it. It's just that word became triggering. It's much like um I mean, you can mention anything like COVID, any of these taboo subjects are like that with, they feel like they're needles going into your ears, subjects you can't talk about when you get mad whenever you hear them. Well, that's one reason, again, why the Fiucci thing was probably ignored in the way that it was. It's just that you're not supposed to visit, the, you're not supposed to contest any of this. Fauci? Are you saying Fauci? Fauci, sorry. Okay. He's not um, French. My bad. French. I live in a different country, so I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't see him reg or hear from him regularly. Uh, uh, where can people find your book? We're not wrap. Well, we're going to be wrapping yeah. here in a minute. It but... is. Yeah, basically, it had be the release had to be delayed because there had to be an extra because it's such a large book. Uh, they actually had to do an extra lot of uh, editorial proofs, which I'm receiving very soon. Uh, it should be available in the first quarter of 2024, January to March 2024. But you can definitely see it uh, advertised and pre-ordered on the Punctum Book website. What's is this true? Maybe you can verify for this for me. Was J James Earl Elroy? Yeah. Was he the one that was breaking? Lee Earl Elroy actually. James isn't. Well, 
is he the one that was breaking into people's homes and yeah, and their panty pants? sniffing? Yeah. Oh my God, is that why he got the title view from Howard's fuck pet? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, well, he says that it was from what his dad told him that Rita Hayworth whispered into his ear one night that yeah, Howard's got all these fuck pets all over between here and Encino. Do so, they exist? Know. Uh, apparently, yes. Okay. Even Howard Orson Welles too said that he had them. So, but you know. <laughs> Orson I'm pretty sure Orson had his own too, as well. What was so. Orson involved in? That man's written so much about so many things. Uh, he was involved in just about everything when you really look at him. He's, he's, he's a very dodgy figure. I mean, he's, got, he's absolutely fascinating, as he damn well knew, because he very much made himself a fascinating person deliberately. But uh, yeah, no, there's all kinds of weirdness around Orson Welles, even though I don't think he was a Black Dahlia murderer. Okay, that's fair. Uh, when. Can I, I you see, well, you already mentioned about the book, but where, if you could look at one area in the book that you haven't included, you said it was 3,000, how many words did you say it was? About a quarter of a million, 300,000. So it's a pretty, it's a very, very, very thick book. If there was one thing you could touch upon that you couldn't include in your book, what is it? I think it's the way in which I, I end the book by insinuating that almost all political speech well let me put it this way i do not believe that there is any political action group in the united states on either, on either the right or the left that has not been thoroughly and completely compromised by domestic intelligence agencies agreed so if there were fbi informants on january 6th and they actually outnumbered them. If there are FBI informants in Black Lives Matter that outnumbered the protesters at a, at a at BOM event. Fair play for Cuba I, committee? Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I we have been able to just verify that during the 1950s, I think the CIA or the FBI or other things that we don't pay enough attention to, like the domestic, uh, the military intelligence organizations, like DIA. Or uh, NI, Naval Intelligence, ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, we don't pay enough attention to, had as many as 5,700 informants or double agents inside the American Communist Party. So I think this I think this is one of the big takeaways, that, which is empirical research. One of the big takeaways I've said that, that the, the Minutemen, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, BOM, many, I, I, there is no major political movement or organization in the United States that is not thoroughly subject to surveillance and inside manipulation by the U.S. state. I would consider right that fact, or left, not even everybody, speculation. Everybody. Yeah. That's, that's fact, not even speculation. Yeah, but I mean, that's an underappreciated fact. And I think if, well, I mean, I, I just think that the possibility on January 6th. I mean, was it a false flag? Was it a Reichstag fire thing? Or was it something that just got out of control and they simply stood back and let it happen? No idea. I'm not even going to bother to speculate. Other than I think there is prima facie a problem with the degree of FBI knowledge. Uh, also, the issue about the kidnapping of the the uh, governor of Michigan. With zip ties. Uh, that's fucking nuts. That's it. And the last couple of people who actually came to trial were acquitted. Because the jury felt that what they were looking at was enticement by by the FBI operatives who had penetrated the um, organization. 
Well, that doesn't even trans. See, in the public spine, that doesn't transcend to our international or our intelligence agencies. But we know, for instance, there's a famous case of a cop. I forgot where exactly she was located at, but it was a cop who infiltrated a high school on to act like an underage high school kid. She's not underage. She was 30 years old. She might have been hot, but she she literally got a kid to sell her drugs five different times, even got to the point of him sleeping with the kid. It was entrapment and the kid got released. But it was the fact that they had the kid in six months or he was in jail for six months or yeah, something like that for six months. But they figured out it was entrapment because she was basically getting this kid and this kid had no connections to get drugs, but it was cannabis. It was pot. Right. We know that. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, police departments are fucking crooked. You're like, well, that goes to your intelligence agencies, too. It doesn't just mean them. Right. No, no, it doesn't. Or, Or again, it doesn't prove that they are. But it diminishes your thrush of resistance to the notion that they may be. I don't know why people want to solidify their trust in the intelligence agencies. That's the worst no. thing you can do. It depends if they're working on your side or not. That's very true. I think Trump was happy with the CIA at a point, and then next thing you know, it yeah. turned. And remember, you know, and if you're talking about liberals, word you don't like, liberals have always been historically anti-CIA. It's not that I don't like now, the word liberals. It's like well, the word Noam Chomsky. I just get okay, but oh, fair enough. But then again, look how the attitude of the liberal and democratic communities have changed since the Donald Trump presidency concerning the veracity and reliability and the dependability and the moral trustworthiness of the FBI and the CIA. As far as I know, it's the same outfit, same organization. As far as I've seen, I've noticed that when those Mar-a-Lago things happened, everyone was 100% like Trump did this. Trump's a bad guy. And then when the Biden stuff happened about him having documents in his garage, none of those people said a goddamn word. I was like, hang on a second. This is about exposing corruption, not about my side versus your side. Well, yeah, but is it? It's a good question. Very good question. We'll end on that question. Okay. Eric, where can people find you, man? Uh, don't like giving out my email address because basically I have a low tolerance for hate mail. <laughs> so, however, you can contact me at Punctum Books. If you want to write to me, contact uh, the publishers of Punctum Books, small case, P-U-N-C-T-U-M, dot books uh, just go online google them and if you want to get a message to me uh file it through them and they'll forward it to me and uh when your book does come out i'll make sure to go back into this episode and link it in there so people can be able to click on it and get yourself a copy send me a copy if you can sign it please uh, I can, or what you can also do is you can also usually download a PDF, although they do kind of expect a contribution i want a physical copy to have okay i'll do my best Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll, I've got your email address, so when if I get my fit my author's copies, I'll try to get you a mail you one. Write me something funny about Demon Dog. Uh, Why Demon I Dog? The, the, I think the whole, well, that's his name. He calls himself Demon Dog. Demon Dog humor, right? So I just call him Demon through the whole book. I just call him Demon Dog. You know, okay. I mean, uh, I also kind of structure the 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 structure of my book is sort of based upon what we were talking about at the beginning of the the podcast about the way he structured Underworld USA, ten pages on one thing and then ten pages of of supposedly released FBI redacted documents. I do the same thing. I talk about something and then I do a couple pages worth of like demon dog quotes with commentary. So does he talk about himself in the third person all the time? <laughs> that's fucking Nixon great. did the same thing so there you go 
Um, all right, Eric, I'm going to link your links in the description. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.